1: Can you hear the portable heaters? Yeah. It's spring. Not in the studio, though. Hey, this is what we call in the business a pre-roll. So before I even start the podcast, I'm going to thank my friends before I you know, I forget later on and completely pull a non-professional type of a trick. <laughs> this podcast, once again, brought to you by our friends at Gooder. Gooder eyewear. Gooder sportswear. Gooder style and shades for a really, really tight budget. Go check them out at Gooder.com. Everything you could think of, old retro styles, new styles, all in the $25 to $35 range for a pair of glasses. You could actually act like a pro in the tour and throw off a pair of glasses and not really necessarily cry it about it when you finish the race. You know, it's like throwing off a water bottle, something like that. It's just like going, wow, that was that was 10 bucks, But you could do it. Technically, if you had a big old ton of bottles, you could do that with Gooder sunglasses. So big thanks to them. Go check them out and see what's going on with them. Speaking of water bottles, I'm looking across the table at our other friends at Scratch Labs. Scratchlabs.com, they have given, well, they haven't given, I bought water bottles from them. Actually, pretty good prices for those. I think about six, seven bucks or something like that. Not too terribly bad. You can check out all the stuff they have there. Get some recipes They've got a waffle recipe, you guys, that I haven't personally tried yet, and I'm going to now because I'm stuck in my house and screwed the diet. But it's actually really good stuff. They have rice uh, bars you can make for, for your long solo rides when you're out there by yourself. May I recommend the apple, a little spiced cinnamon kind of a taste on <laughs> it? I'm telling you, it's good. So big thanks to Scratch and to Gooder. We're recording. Yeah, this is usually the part in the podcast where we have a whole bunch of people in the background bantering. Somebody, you know, loudly opening a beer. Nope. Still in quarantine. Welcome to another episode of The Pack Filler. I am Pat Bulger. I'm in this studio alone in my midlife crisis. I'm not simplifying the COVID-19. I am. I think I might be in a midlife crisis. I. I might. Don't know if you guys saw that. I set up my old drum kit from back in the day when I was in a rock band. Been communicating with members of the band. We're thinking about you know doing some online sharing of songs and reliving the glory days. <laughs> oh God, it's so formulaic. Well, I hope you're holding up. I hope you're uh, finding ways to to get outside or to at least uh, stay fit and stay active and and keep up to keep mentally up. That's what we're trying to do, right? That's our goal here. Personally, I tried out a uh, a Zwift race for the first time in a long time yesterday. I'm actually it wasn't bad. I gotta say it was it was one of the old I think we used to call them Australian handicaps where you'd have no, that's not offensive. Um, you would have different groups go off at different times depending upon their abilities. Okay, So you've got the, the A's, the B's, the C's, and the D's. The A's go off last and try and basically catch everyone in the D groups. And it's it's just a massive sprint, more or less. And I think that's what it feels like Zwift races are to me. I, I just basically set a pace that I could maybe maintain, almost like a time trial, and just held on for dear god life it is a 20 some mile race pretty flat but um i did do some attacking towards the end but yeah it's fun it's it was enjoyable i was amazed at the fact that i was in the c group and there were some people in that group pushing like four plus watts per kilo um, which is pretty damn impressive wink wink nudge nudge say no more but you know I, I think with the stuff like that you just got to take it with all with a grain of salt and just go out there and get a good workout i was in a group with like five or six other riders and we just hammered and kept going and it was it was fun it kept you motivated it's not just the simple workouts that you you're constantly stuck doing so i can say all this because paul's not in the studio right now but no, it's, it, it's a good, enjoyable way to get yourself on your bike and stay motivated. You look on the schedule, you sign up for an event, you get out there and you do it, and you, you hopefully close the, the chat group because everybody's complaining, don't surge, or people are complaining about cheating or somebody's saying that they're from Ohio or something like that. But um, it's a good it's a good effort. I enjoyed it. So there we go. I'm doing that. I'm doing some Sufferfest stuff. I'm going to go out a couple times. It's here in lovely Spokane, Washington. It's in the 40s max right now, and we're getting a big dose of rain and snow and things like that. I, I blame that on CP because we were on a ride, our last, quote, group ride, unquote, with a whopping three riders before our governor told us not to do that anymore. Last time we were on a ride, it was a beautiful sunny day, probably pushing 60 degrees, and he said, boy, I thought the end of the world would be cloudy and depressing. And four days later, the weather's cloudy and depressing and we're stuck in our houses. So um, I can give you CP's email if you want to blame him for something like that. There we go. Today's episode is an enjoyable one. If you've been watching or have heard of the Tour de Quarantine, you might know what is going on with... And I I thought it was actually a great idea, and it's enjoyable, and it's funny, and it's a great tongue-in-cheek way for us to get through the fact that we don't have any bike races to watch Brad Soner, you probably recognize his voice as soon as he comes on. It's, it's, it's just liquid gold, it, it, liquid velvet, his voice is. And it's, um, it's so much fun to talk to him and, and get, hear about his ideas of the tour to quarantine and also to hear what it's like to be on the job doing that TV commentary and all the kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, you know, and see what's going on with all that. And here we might think it's all glitz and glamour and how much work. It actually takes to do all the things that he does for his his job. And for those of you who are always online complaining about commentary or for those of you chiming in about my stammering and and podcast style of speaking. okay, go for it. But you got to understand, it takes a little bit more than just turning on a mic and making magic happen. And that's what I thought was really cool. So without further ado, let's listen in to Brad Soner on the Pack Filler. Well, if you've watched a bike race online or on TV in the United States or even attended one of the biggies, you have definitely heard this man's sultry tones today. Not only is he one of the premier voices of American cycling, he's also the creator of the best thing we cyclists in quarantine are reaching for their phones for daily right now, the hilarious tour to quarantine. Let's welcome to the show. Brad Soner. How are you, man? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. You bet, man. Um, well, first of all, uh, thanks so much for this needed dose of humor with what's going on with Tour de Quarantine. Um, I, I, I've had a ton of people. I think somebody sent it to me the first time where I discovered it, and then it's it's been pretty much nonstop in my inbox, in my social media feeds lately.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's something we all need, right? I was uh, driving myself crazy at home uh, with nothing to do, so... I was looking out my window and saw a bunch of people riding around, and I thought, hey, you can turn anything into a race. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I had some video editing skills from the TV side of things and threw some graphics on there, and uh, it has since grown into a beast that I, I had no idea. I uploaded it to Twitter the first day. I uh, went for a bike ride, came back a couple hours later, uh, and I was blown away by the response. <laughs> um, I had no intention of, I didn't even know if I was going to do a stage two. You know, I, I didn't know what it was. It was just a, uh, You know, a project while I was bored one day and uh, it's it's turned into a full on bike race.
1: (laughs) So how much goes into it in terms of like preparation? Is this are you this a camera that you've got stock footage or something like that or is this across the way from your home or, or what like that?
2: Yeah, so it's the it is the view out outside of my apartment uh, using a very high tech camera called an iPhone, um, which uh, is the only equipment that I have I'm stuck in the apartment here with. But uh, yeah, the hardest part is just is uh, getting the footage and, and watching the riders um, because there are a lot of riders over there, but it's not always good racing content per se. So. Uh, a lot of sitting, a lot of looking out the window, a lot of waiting, but I got nothing but time on my hands for the next <laughs> couple
1: of weeks. And is it off the cuff, the, the commentating, or is it just you're kind of, you you probably can watch some footage or something like that and come up with some bits then, but is it is it a lot of off the cuff stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously, I know what's coming. Um, I do do the voiceover after we film it, but I try to do it in one pass. Try to, you know, keep it authentic and make it as as real as possible. Um, when you start to go back and do overdubs, I think yeah. it, it starts to change the vibe a little bit. So, um, yeah, I try and you know treat it like a real TV show and treat it like like real commentary. I
1: don't, um, I don't know how you can do it without laughing because I would just, <laughs> I would end up bursting about halfway through, and just go, oh, I got to start over. Yes. <laughs> It's
2: tough keeping the camera still. you know, when I know I have a good <laughs> shot when I when I'm seeing a good race or you know, I'm watching guy in orange go up against e-bike lady, it's tough to <laughs> to keep it steady when I know that that's the moment, you know that's what's going to make the show that day. so.
1: What was the guy on the high ground that who was way up really high and he dropped down and from the oh yeah the high,
2: high line guy. highline Classic. guy Classic. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when that I'll tell you when that BMX crew rolled in it was like <laughs> I, I knew that was the show for yeah. the day those yeah. guys were flying it was awesome
1: <laughs> so how many stages are in in the works is this going as long as you're stuck home or is this going to be something that's like a limited you know two to three week tour
2: yeah you know that's uh, still TBD I guess. Um, <laughs> We'll uh, we'll see how things go after a seven or a ten day stage race, and then see if it uh, if it turns into a Grand Tour. Um, <laughs> I've had some some brands reach out about trying to get involved, so that may uh, that may help extend it oh um, God. a little longer. But uh, yeah, it's pretty much the only game in town right now, so it's pretty <laughs> easy to dominate in, in the space right <laughs> yeah, now.
1: It is. It it is. And it is, but it's been fun. So I, it's I like I said, I know a lot of cyclists are finding some fun in it, and you know, and especially. Just the the little side bits and and the post-race interviews and stuff like that, you know, having Tom Dumoulin as orange (laughs) guy and things like that. It's just, it's really fun, man.
2: Yeah, the voices are tough too. I really have to, I have to work hard to get those voices out. Obviously, that's not something that I'm used to while I'm doing yeah. commentary. Yeah, so,
1: throw, some to, in, throw some in next time you do a legit full-on race. Just you know, try yeah. to just play around with something. See no, you happens. never
2: know, guy in the orange might make an appearance yeah, at the next, exactly. uh, you know, next national championships right. or something.
1: Right on. Hey, so uh, you know, on a, on a little bit of a of a gear shift here or a, a shift in directions here with races being p- postponed or even canceled and things like that. So. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of what's going on with pro cycling right now and the status of, of the longevity of this and the longevity of the sport as a whole?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's obviously unlike anything we've ever dealt with before. Um, you know, we've had canceled races, we've had, uh, races that get postponed, but to have what could very well be an entire season, um, you know, go away is uh, something that I think we're still realizing the gravity of, um, and I think more people are realizing that. That I, th- I think that's a real possibility that we might not be racing bikes until you know July, August, September, October. Uh, nobody knows, and that's the other hard part of, of about this. Um, you know even back uh, um, uh, let's say three weeks ago when when events were starting to realize the impact that this was going to have they started to reschedule and it was rescheduling for july and then it was rescheduling yeah. for august and then september and um you know it just keeps going later and later so i think the the not knowing is the worst part um you know we all deal with races that go away and uh, we all kind of expect that, you know, you, you'll you'll lose a few races here and there. And obviously consistency is not the strong point of the sport of cycling. But, yeah. um, you know, the the idea that we don't really know when this thing is going to end and when we're going to get back to bike racing is, I think, the scariest part for most people.
1: And with the sport so dependent upon sponsorships and, and exposure of those sponsorships through teams, through events, through uh, broadcasts that you guys are involved with and things like that. Um, what kind of long lasting changes do you foresee upon the horizon, trying to obviously trying to keep an optimistic tone about some of this? But this is this is some scary stuff.
2: Yeah, but I think there is a chance to bring some some needed change to the sport. Um, you know, we saw this happen, for example, in the United States with Tour California, where, mm-hmm. you know, teams were promising sponsors that they were going to get into Tour of California and they were sort of, Basing their entire season around the publicity that they got from this one race, and when that didn't come through, they realized how bad of a business model that is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the World Tour teams are pretty much the same way. It's it, you know the the Tour de France is obviously the the biggest sales point for them and their sponsors. And so I hope that the good that comes out of this is we start to realize that. These teams need to be more well-rounded, and we need to figure out how to create a good marketing product that's not just based around being on TV at a specific bike race, but it's more about creating an entire interesting package that people want to follow. So hopefully the teams will carry some of the stuff that they're being forced to do now into uh, seasons to come, and we see less and less of being – strictly reliant on getting into certain races or, or having certain races on TV or whatever. So, you know, uh, necessity necessity is the mother of all invention. Right. Yeah, so yeah. now's a good time to, to figure out what else we can offer brands. You know, how else can we market to people without just throwing a logo on a jersey and trying to get it on TV.
1: I'm seeing some of these things, and I, I know that some of my listeners are going to groan when I say this thing, but I'm seeing some of these things in a lot of these guys who are, who are leaving the Pro Tour and going to something like Gravel or what we're calling alternative racing where they're doing more. Um, Ian Boswell, for example, who's doing his podcast, he's doing a lot of uh, PR work for Wahoo and things like that. And that might be, um, as you say, this model, this business model that changes it more than just seeing a jersey at the front of the peloton.
2: Yeah. And I mean, look at the privateers, you know, all these guys that built their own programs over the last two or three years and kind of got out of, uh, the world tour model and, and brought their own sponsors together. And it's not really about racing for them anymore. You know, the, these are, uh, media people now, mm-hmm. um, and that's certainly a, a bright spot in this whole thing that uh, the people that made that jump to a privateer program are probably a lot better off than the world tour teams right now um, mm. because they have a lot more to offer to these brands. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, another very interesting point about this uh, sort of seeing into the future uh, a couple of years ago. I'm I'm betting there's a lot of world tour riders that wish they had made the I don't want to say the gravel jump, but yeah. I will say the privateer jump.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. Hey, so are uh, you know your perspective and from where you are dealing directly with the events themselves? Are there any that you know that are still in the works that you've heard of that are like, no, we're still we're still on premier events? I guess I could ask.
2: Yeah, I mean, as as of right now, um, I think Tour of Utah still plans on running on their dates in August, um, but that is obviously open to. Um, Frequent changes. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there's a group in the U.S. called the NAPRD, the National Association of Professional Race Directors, uh, which is basically a collection of all the road promoters um, that have PRT or big stage races in the U.S. Uh, and I've been on a couple of their calls. They hold a weekly call, um, and it's just cautious optimism. You know, yeah. uh, the date sort of keeps getting pushed back. Uh, you know, a week here, a week there. Um, and it's basically just meeting every week and assessing the situation and figuring out if, uh, you know, if that date needs to be pushed back even further. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there are some events in August that I think still have the hope that they'll uh, go on and that uh, they'll be able to race in August. But uh, with every passing day of this thing, it, it uh, seems to become less realistic that we may
1: be racing in that time. Oh man. Okay. Uh, I know. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll, I'll shift gears again here. One more time. Tell me about your your history with the sport and how you came into the into fine cycling and and I guess even kind of come into this career path, which is not what some would call a usual career path. So
2: most people wouldn't even call it a career path. (laughs) But uh, I got my start when I was a kid. Uh, It was my first summer job when I was like 14 years old. Uh, I worked for an event services company uh, that was based out of my hometown in Columbus, Ohio, Uh, basically just setting up fence. I was a manual laborer for the summer. Um, And, uh, you know, it was a lot better than mowing lawns and shoveling driveways. So uh, I got to travel around all these bike races, um, and the more I watched, the more I fell in love with them. I was really just there to work. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't a cycling fan yet. Uh, but I, you know, I saw a few really good races. Uh, my family hosted some riders. I was, uh, the first rider we ever hosted was Tina Pick. Um, and she ended up winning the race that we were hosting her for. And I think that was the moment where I was hooked, where, you know, our rider that, that we were hosting and that had dinner with us last night, uh, won this big race it was called the Wendy's international cycling classic okay. in, in Columbus. Um, and from then on, I, you know, I, I fell in love. It, it, it really started in criterium racing. Those were the most of what I did during the summer. Um, and then obviously expanded into road and then mountain and cross and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of by accident. And then one day I was just sitting on stage, uh, watching the race. I was like 16 years old and, uh, the announcer there was like, Hey kid, you got a good voice. You know, the sport, I'm pretty sure he just didn't want to work, but, uh, <laughs> he gave me the mic and gave me some cards to read and, uh, it kind of snowballed from there. The rest was history.
1: Oh man. Really? Okay. So now it wasn't Jeff Roker, anybody like that. Cause I don't know. It was Jeff is that too old of a name? That might be. Uh, he was no, actually, so, uh,
2: Jeff and I overlapped a little bit at the big tours. Okay. Um, like California, he was he was there. Um, I got my st- my first job at Tour of California was in the mobile PA car, which was out in front of the race um, with speakers on top. We would drive like five minutes out in front of the leaders and just kind of hype everyone up along the route uh, before they came. Uh, and Jeff was the PA announcer there at the time. And then uh, after a couple years of that, uh, I got the call up to move to the stage, and uh, yeah, that was another big break to get to do the the tour California stage PA. Um, that was a, a big jump in the career for sure.
1: And then and then the shift into the broadcasting booth with with TV and online and things like that. That was an, was that just a logical progression, or was it something? You know, how different are the two? I, I also do live event announcing, and I know that's a completely different feel. Yeah,
2: yeah, significantly different for sure. Um, and actually I started in the broadcast side of things, really thinking I wanted to work behind the scenes. I never really saw myself as uh, an honor commentator. I was more interested in how these races were made and uh, the technology behind them and how we shoot them and the graphics and, and all that stuff, because that was what I thought really made bike racing interesting or where I could have the biggest impact on racing. Um, but naturally, being around the sport and being uh, a commentator for the PA, more and more of these clients uh, were starting to do web streams, which was another big part of it. Uh, the, you know, the, the growth of live streaming uh, that created a lot more opportunities. And then, you know, same thing with live PA announcing. Someone hears you at one race, and then they invite you to their race, and then they hear you, and it uh, you know, it just snowballs from there. So, uh, yeah, I always thought I would be behind the scenes in a broadcast truck, but um, now it's just about you know, doing whatever we can to make the make the best show. And sometimes that means me on the mic and sometimes that means me in the truck.
1: Wow. So for those of those of us who just kind of sit back and and watch and or listen, things like that and don't know what it's like, what would you describe the workload would be like for somebody for for you? For exactly, say, covering something like the Tour of Utah. Uh,
2: Yeah. Chaotic. Uh, Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, uh, like all live TV. Um, you know, there's a million things going on and then it gets distilled down to one thing that the viewer at home sees. Um, you know, we have stuff in our ear, we're getting notifications on the computer. We have a timing screen that has all the results and stuff like that. Producers are talking to you in the ear directors trying to talk to you. Um, and then, you know, hopefully it all comes out as a, a smooth product at the end. um, but yeah, that's kind of part of the job is to distill it down. And then obviously there's a, a bunch of research that goes into it. Um, you know, we get rosters and stuff beforehand. Um, we'll sit down with the riders. Usually a producer will interview the riders, the key riders, to get uh, like sound clips beforehand. Yeah. Um, and we'll sit down on those and, and talk to the riders, ask them some questions. Um, but to be honest, a, a big part of the research is just hanging out at the bike race, you know. It's amazing how much you learn about the riders from a hotel shuttle or you're in an elevator together or, you know, waiting in line at the coffee shop. Uh, I can't tell you how much I've learned you know, about riders and from riders in those settings rather than just you know, researching their pro cycling stats page or trying to sit down for an interview or trying to go back and memorize all these results and stuff. So uh, it's kind of a body of work. You know, it's an ongoing process and uh, you never know when you're going to learn something new.
1: And it's not just something it sounds like that you, a newbie can just jump into and have a have a script to follow a lot of cases. It's it's unscripted. It's it's based upon your prior knowledge. And and like you say, these interactions that you're dealing with.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and I work with a lot of broadcasters a lot of times on a network. They'll bring in, um, you know, a, a franchise network commentator uh, mm-hmm. that maybe doesn't know a lot about cycling, but uh, works for the network. Um and you you really realize how specific cycling is as a sport and how many of these little nuances there are and, and little things that uh, you kind of take for granted as someone that that knows cycling um, you know you, you go back and see the questions that uh, new fans are asking um, and it's stuff that we haven't thought about for years you know <laughs> are there pads in their shorts <laughs> uh, you know why do they shave their legs that oh, kind of God, stuff yeah yeah <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's also a good kind of opportunity to sort of step back and um, deliver a show to non-cycling fans, which I think is something that we really miss in cycling coverage and, and part of why um, it's it sort of had this failure to launch, because we talk to cyclists. Uh, and if we just talk to cyclists, we're only going to have cyclists listening to these shows. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times on TV, and I, I get some, maybe some fair criticism for it, but I really try to. I don't want to say dumb it down, but make it as simple and easy to understand as possible so that if there is a new viewer out there, uh, they get hooked and they see the sport for the first time and really understand what's going on because the hundred guys racing in spandex is not very interesting, but watching a hundred guys in a, a pro cycling race with tactics and teamwork and stuff, that's where the real beauty of the sport comes in. So, uh, you know, uh, trying to, to dumb it down and make it easy to understand because Cycling fans know about as much as me about cycling. You know, there's not much that I can teach you guys about uh, riders or tactics or whatever. You guys know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and my job is to, you know, just help identify stuff. But I think the, the biggest place that commentators can help is with new cycling fans because, um, you know, for the most part, we don't really have any special inside information that the viewer at home has you know we're seeing pretty much the same thing that you guys are seeing on the screen it's not like we have uh, a bunch of different screens that we're seeing we sometimes will have a quad split screen but um for the most part we're seeing the program feed yeah. and so we see what you see um
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. And, and we're we're calling it as we see it.
1: And having to fill the extended amount of time that these broadcasts take take place over, you know, I'll watch a specific stage in tour Utah or something like that. And let's say it's a three, four hour coverage that you guys are doing. For those out there complaining and, and giving you guys crap about it, you you try and sit there in front of a mic for four hours and make it interesting.
2: <laughs> that might be the hardest part of the oh, job, yeah. is, uh, the, the long days. Uh, there's nothing in this world that I loathe more than individual time trials. It is, uh, <laughs> as, as a commentator, it is almost impossible to try to make those things exciting and um, but you know you just kind of slog through and if the riders have to do it, we can do it. And I always think, you know, at least I'm not out there riding. At least I don't <laughs> have to do the watts that these guys are doing. I can do it from a comfortable commentary booth with a yeah. cold drink.
1: Yeah, okay. So how about some of these these post race interviews and things like that and of the of the many that you've completed over the years, are there some that stick out in your mind that have been some of the best in terms of an athlete? you know, really giving you something, something good to work with. I, you know, I keep thinking of Peter Sagan and his, his comedic tendencies or things like yes. that.
2: Yeah. I mean, especially at uh, like tour California, tour Utah, when I do the the stage, like when we have sign in, in the morning, um, there's a lot of really good, just banter that comes out of that. The riders are still relaxed in the morning. You know, they're, they're not stressed. They just woke up had breakfast. They're caffeinated. They got coffee in them. So uh, I think signing in the morning is the, the best time to get those riders. Um, maybe the interview that stands out most for me was the first time I ever did Tour of California. It was uh, the year that they canceled the stage at Tahoe because it was snowing. Oh, yeah. Um, and this was my first time on stage at, at California. Um, and actually, split us up with the guy that I was working with, uh, Dave Toll, had to go to the finish because there was only one way down the mountain. And so one of us had to be at the start and one of us had to be at the finish because there was no way to get from the start to the finish ahead of the riders. Um, and so I was on stage by myself, scared out of my pants, no idea what to do. <laughs> um, and then we have this delay. For snow, and they're like, yeah, just fill the gap, you know, just do whatever. <laughs> talk to some people, and I'm like, you know, surrounded by my heroes, these world tour riders, and <laughs> trying to build up the courage to interview them. And so, um, Bernie Eisel was uh, leaning against the stage, just waiting, uh, you know, waiting for the the call to be made as to whether the race was going to happen or not. So I thought I'd interview him. I just knelt down and a you know very casual, uh, conversational, you know, Hey, Bernie, how you feeling? What do you think about today? Uh, you ready to ride in the cold? Um, and, uh, needless to say, he was not ready to ride in the cold and he made it very well known over the PA that he was not, uh, not happy with the organizers of the race. There were a few choice words in there and, uh, <laughs> I had to make a very quick decision as to whether or not it was okay to cut Bernie Eisel off and take the mic away from him. Um, and in the end, I just kind of let him talk for a while and he, he wrapped it up himself. But, um. Yeah, that was my technically my first interview, my first world tour interview at Tour California. And uh, it was Bernie Eisel giving very honest feelings about uh, racing in the snow.
1: <laughs> oh, man. And, and, you know, to be able to come up with stuff like that on the cuff again, that's another thing that I keep referring back to is to, to when somebody looks at you and says just says, Phil, the average person's brain would go into panic mode and no creative thought would enter at all. But you guys can't do that. You have to figure out some way to keep the conversation going.
2: Yeah. Whether it's with, you know, other riders or your partner or a lot of times just with yourself, you know, Um, (laughs) just trying to talk about uh, about whatever. Um, But I think it's also okay uh, to be quiet every once in a while. You know, I'm not uh, especially on a broadcast. I'm not afraid of silence. I'm not afraid to let the pictures do a little bit of talking, you know, listen to the helicopter, listen to the motos, try and listen to the riders talking. Um, I don't think we necessarily need to talk the entire time, but, yeah. uh, there's definitely a point where you're like, okay, this is getting awkward. I need to say something, um, <laughs> whether I have something to say or not. And so that's when you start making observations about, you know, the weather or the road or the rider's yeah. bike or whatever.
1: Do they give you any kind of a cheat sheet or something like that? Cause I, I keep thinking of like, uh, you know, back when, when Paul Sherwin, you know, God rest his soul, was doing some of his stuff. You know, they'd cut to, a, a you know, a, the helicopter circling a, a castle or something like that. And Paul would all of a sudden, you knew there was like, no way Paul did all this homework. This yep. is just somebody handing him some copy that he can read. Yeah, so
2: that, um, at the big races, yeah, that's part of it. Um, they actually do this well beforehand. They have GPS coordinates that they give to the helicopter pilots before they go up. Um, and it comes from this the tourism organization, you know, a lot, who's a lot of times paying for the race. Um, and then we get, uh, yeah, we get reads on each of the things, um, and kind of try and study up on those the night before. So you at least know a little bit about them. Um, and then every once in a while, a producer will get in your ear and, uh, you know, offer something up, uh, Hmm. Hey, we found this clip or let's look at this person's social media or, just an interesting fact that they found or saw or read or something. So we do get a little bit of help. It's not, uh, it's not like we're completely on our own, yeah. but, um, I would say 95% of the time you're pretty much just hearing my unfiltered thoughts.
1: <laughs> so, Give me some misconceptions about your job What the average person sitting here listening and assuming, you know, we, we try to enter the mindset of what you're doing and, uh, can, you know, think about what your perspective is like. But what are some things that it's like, no, you guys got this all wrong. This is not what this job is like.
2: I think the travel is one thing that people really underestimate um, it. You know, I, I did 250 days on the road last year. Um, which sounds great until you're in the middle seat on a five-hour cross-country flight, um, you know, and then your bags lost, and then you can't find the Uber when you get to the airport, and um, you know everything that comes along with travel. So the the travel life uh, is not always glamorous. It definitely gets uh, gets boring and lonely on the road, um, especially when you have multiple tours back to back. Um, so the the behind the scenes of the racing is maybe not so glamorous. Um, And then I think where we commentate from surprises people a lot of times, too. They think we're in a, you know, some plush commentary booth. But most (laughs) of the time we're in like a tent in a parking lot with a fold up table. You know, if we're not on camera and it's just audio commentary um, for for the TV or web streams, um, you know, we we don't we don't exactly have a palace to commentate from.
1: (laughs) They're not all perfectly air conditioned studios that you walk into. And oh, come on.
2: In fact, a great story from tour of Utah, uh, several years ago, I was on the live stage. I, I wasn't on the, uh, live live yet. I think it was Tim Johnson and Frankie Andreu, but, um, they had set this, the commentary tent up in the field, which was just right next to the TV truck, you know, truck parks in a parking lot. And then they just put the tent right next to it. And, uh, about an hour and a half into the stage, um, there was a weird ticking sound that everyone heard and uh, they realized that it was the sprinklers coming up and, and there was a recessed sprinkler directly in the middle of the commentary booth that proceeded to uh, spray a full 360 degree spray um, on, uh, on Frankie and Tim and all of the gear in there. So luckily one of the PAs ran in and I think they put a box over it or a cup or something to, uh, temporarily stop it until the ground started flooding so
1: oh my god and nobody threw an f-bomb out over the air that, at any point yeah. I in time mean, that's
2: that the way. yeah that's the art of uh, art of commentary you know um, <laughs> it's just trying to trying to stay calm another one of my best commentary stories also comes from tour of utah uh three years ago um i had separated my shoulder um uh, I fell rock climbing a few weeks before the tour uh, and it still had the tendency to pop out. And uh, we were on the time trial day and about 12 seconds before we came on air, I popped my shoulder out. It rolled out. I was just leaning back in the chair, dumb thing. And uh, it, popped out of the socket and so uh we came on air uh the director was very confused as to why i was making the face that i was and saying the things that i was you know six seconds before we went on air um but we basically came welcomed everyone and then went straight to a commercial break so that i could uh, run to the ambulance and uh have them reset my shoulder um but i got back on the back on headset before break was done and uh we finished the show
1: oh my god oh well, that's yeah. the
2: <laughs> and I pride myself on, you know, no one being able to tell that yeah. I had just separated my shoulder.
1: <laughs> okay, that's, those are nice. Hey, um, you know, and this is something that I tend to ask a lot of people involved in the sport, and especially the higher levels of the sport. We're seeing, um, and this this is kind of a question that doesn't really include our current state of things with COVID-19, um, but the sport itself seems to be in a i'm not i'm not i don't want to call it a slump but we we're, we're seeing the decline of some races we're seeing that a um especially on a regional and and local basis uh, some races really and events t- trying starting to suffer but we are seeing growth in other areas mountain biking continues to do fine and of course gravel seems to be you know absolutely losing its mind um what do you think in terms of speci- specifically for road cycling that is needed within the sport to build it back up to some of those You know, early 2000s numbers and and that type of enthusiasm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is being realistic about what these teams and races are. Um, Like we talked about earlier with with Tour California, you know, as much as I love Tour California and as awesome as Tour California was for American cycling fans, because we got to see the World Tour guys come to the U.S. once a year, um, it was pretty. Detrimental to the teams in the United States because Tour California became the end-all, be-all. That became the goal for all these teams, and ultimately that led to a lot of teams' downfall because they didn't get into the races that they had hoped that they would, or that they had sold their sponsors on getting into. Um, And so, races like that going away and sort of shifting the model towards you know quality. branding as opposed to just trying to get on tv at this rate at these races i think is actually a good thing um you know we, we kind of hit a critical mass there for a while with high-end uh road racing yeah. um and now we can kind of take a step back and look at it i always compare it to like if you want to compare it to music you know europe is the symphony but america is rock and roll and that'll that'll never go away and we need to look at cycling through our lens um th- through the american lens um and, and, um, deliver the content that is interesting to Americans because we just don't have the European cycling culture here. And, uh, I don't think that it's really the right thing for American cycling to try to just replicate that here. Um, and so I think we, we kind of have a reset right now where we can look back and figure out what is good about American cycling, what is American cycling, uh, and then start to build on that, uh, which means going back to grassroots racing and then, you know, figuring out from there how we grow that and turn that into a marketable product uh, for professionals at, at the higher level. But I certainly don't think it's five, six-hour road races Um you know, trying to emulate the Tour de France, trying to have a 21-day stage race in you know uh, in the United States is is just not what America is about. Um, and so we're going to find our our thing. Uh, you know, just like we did with gravel. Uh, not that America invented gravel, but we certainly popularized it over the last couple of years. Uh, we've sort of, you know, I think, American cyclists have sort of adopted it as their thing. Uh, and there's obviously gravel racing and stuff going on in Europe, but it's, uh, incredibly prominent here in the U S and a lot of people are, I think, leaving road racing to go to, uh, more inviting, uh, more fun and less stressful disciplines like gravel. Um, Uh because when we try to just mimic Europe, it becomes, um, too stressful for a lot of people and it's just not fun. And we lose sight of, of what's cool, uh, about bike racing. And for most Americans, it's, you know, hanging out with your friends and drinking beer, and you know, going fast every once in a while, but not counting calories and uh, eating cheese on the side of a mountain, and you know, camping in your van for four days to watch them come up a, a big climb. Um, you know, we just have to figure out the the product that really works for us and the product that works for the United States, and then start to build on that and deliver that.
1: That's awesome. That no, that's a really good perspective on it, and I I loved your your symphony versus the, the rock and roll kind of a concept. You're right. They're two completely different demographics and, and audiences. And so
2: The other tried, example yeah. I always give is is with food. Um, you know, what do, what, do, what does America do with food? We take authentic food, we completely screw it up, and then we <laughs> make it our own thing. Um, you know, if you've ever had Chinese food in the United States, it's not the Chinese food that you have in China, but <laughs> it's our Chinese food, and we love it. You know, I, I love a good General Tso's chicken, but... Yeah. You're not going to find General So's chicken in China. Um, And so, you know, we just need to – pizza. You know, we we took Italian pizza, and what do we do? Stuff the crust, put pineapple on it, you know, (laughs) whatever Americans have done to pizza. But we made it our thing, Uh, and that's what we need to do with bike racing. We need to take – import it from Europe, make it our own, and then create something that really is great and unique.
1: Right on, right on. So 250-some-odd days a, a year, what's your cycling life like?
2: You know, I ride as much as I can. Most of it is uh, commuting. Uh, you know, going to the grocery. Um, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, without a car. Um, but one of the the few cities in America where I think you can uh, live a decent life without a car. Um, I lived in New York for a while and really got used to uh, the life of just not having to deal with the car. You know, not having to get in and uh, drive to the grocery, and deal with parking, and all this stuff. So. Uh, when I was ready to leave New York, I really fell in love with the idea of, uh, of not living with a car. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I, try to get a lot of riding in that way. And then road riding, you know, if I have a, a, a day free, I'll go out and try and do 50 or 60 miles. Um, uh, and I've also gotten into some bike packing recently too, oh, okay. uh, with, uh, with my buddies. So, um, my two childhood friends who, uh, for years told me cycling was dumb and I looked ridiculous in my spandex kit and shaving (laughs) my legs and stuff I have both now become cyclists um and so you know I I was right all along and I love to ride with them and rub it in their face that they've been missing out on this for years and uh you know I told them in eighth grade that we should have been should have been riding bikes but um (laughs) yeah uh, never really not really a racer myself um you know I think I see enough racing I just never really had uh one I don't have the time to train uh it would it would not be pretty, uh, to see me in a race with, uh, with road fitness or yeah. travel fitness, we'll say. Um, so yeah, it's just, you know, I, the bike to me is a, it, one is a tool and two is a, you know, a place to have fun and, uh, kind of get away for a few hours, but, uh, not a lot of competitive riding in my world. Uh, I think I'm, I'm kind of competitive cycling out when I get home.
1: I can imagine. Yeah, exactly. So how many bikes and which, and uh, which one or ones are your favorite?
2: Let's see. I got, uh, five in the stable right now. Uh, my favorite bike at the moment is don't tell anyone, but my girlfriend's e-bike, um, <laughs> uh, I bought, I bought her a bike so we could ride together. And, uh, this thing is just fun as all get out. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I knew e-bikes were cool, but, uh, you know, the first time I got on one, I really rode one, it was, uh, it was a life changing experience. They are, they're just fun. Uh, so I, yeah, it, every <laughs> once in a while I'll sneak out of the house with that and, uh, you know, take it for a few laps. But, um, I also have, uh, my, my, I think my favorite bike in the stable is, uh, the first bike I ever built when I was, uh, in college. Um, I got my dad's old, uh, Cannondale. I think it was a CAD 10, I have to go back and look at the thing, but, um, uh, I cannibalized it and turned it into a fixie. My apologies <laughs> to all, uh, Annandale purists out there. Um, but I, it, riding that fixie around campus in college really made me fall in love with, with cycling. And so, uh, that bike has a really special place for me. Um, even though it's a ridiculous looking fixie <laughs> with white tires and, you know, it doesn't have any brakes, but, uh. At the time, it served its purpose well, and so uh, and it was passed down from my dad, and so that'll always have a, a special place in my heart.
1: You're not you're not burning any bridges here. You just happen to mention, you know, e-bikes and then a fixie within you right. know like two right. minutes of each <laughs> other. So I, I, you know, we'll we'll see. You know, I'll probably get some people saying, "What the hell?" But um, no, I my you know, I have one of those. My my first real road bike, racing road bike, was a steel Davidson built by uh, Bill Davidson over here in Seattle, and I converted yeah. that to a campus bike for my kid. And so, you know, as long as they're still out being used, you know, they, hey, it's better than hanging up on the wall and rusting. And it it hung in our
2: garage for years. And then, you know, when it was time to go to college, I asked dad if I could take it. And, uh, yeah, he said, yes, it was an R 600. I just remembered. Uh, And it has the big fat down tube, which I absolutely love. Um, it's one of the most beautiful bikes I've ever seen. Um, I love those old 90s, like the Kleins and Cannondale is just big, fat, fat aluminum
1: tube. I called them pregnant bikes back in the days. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. so um, if they if they aren't already, how can people follow you and especially where can they find Tour de Quarantine? And and of course, beyond that, all the other stuff that you're involved with.
2: Yeah, I think uh, Twitter is my most active social media platform, Um, just at Brad Soner on Twitter. Um, I'm trying to do better with the the other platforms. Uh, still yet to get a TikTok, but that's on my list. Um, one day I'll get there. Uh, but yeah, I would say if you want to see a tour to quarantine stages, just follow me on Twitter or uh, on my YouTube. You can find me on YouTube. I upload them there every day.
1: Right on. Well, man, this is I remember uh, several years ago when they had the writer strike in Hollywood and uh, a lot of people just started creating content just randomly to to help keep people entertained. And th- this this is a lot bigger of a deal than a writer's strike a global <laughs> pandemic. But but I know a lot of cyclists are really enjoying what you're putting together. So I'm, and I'm sure you're getting that feedback, but I just wanted to voice it to you. And thanks for doing it out there, man. It's fun.
2: I'm here to serve the people, um, but I will say uh, if it hadn't been for the great feedback, I don't know that there would have been a stage two or three or four uh, or 10 or 20 or whatever this thing becomes. So I appreciate the uh, the good feedback, but I'm just happy to, you know, put a smile on some people's faces in a pretty difficult time here.
1: Yeah. And thanks for thanks for your voice. Um, you know, it's it's I love when you were talking about dumbing it down and i don't necessarily like you said i didn't want to use dumbing it down you're making it accessible for a lot of people i'll sit down with people and watch bike races and they'll be asking me all these questions and the only way we can build the sport is to teach people about it and so don't let them give you any crap man you're doing a good job
2: hey thanks i appreciate it that's uh that's what it's about getting more people interested and ultimately getting more people on bikes
1: amen thanks man So there you have another episode of the Pack Filler. Hey, you're welcome, by the way, two in a week. Well, one and a half in a week. We had some technical issues, and I've heard you on on the last episode. Um, But, you know, they can't all be home runs, right? Right? Give it a listen. If you haven't listened, tell me what you think. You know, you you can pick on certain people. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of which, don't hesitate to... Subscribe to the podcast. To you can even rate our podcast. I'm I'm a big boy. I can handle it. And uh, let us know how you're holding up, how things are going. Any cool ideas that you'd like to pursue, or you'd like to hear from us? Any cool individuals you'd like to hear me speak to on the podcast? I'm up for suggestions all the time because I'm stuck in here all by myself with my midlife crisis drum kit. There you go. Stay strong. Wash your damn hands. Don't touch anybody else. And we'll get through all this, right? Right? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check
2: out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine
3: leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part?